And now if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training where they will learn more about corporate worship together, about hearing from God in His Word and singing together and praying together. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Ephesians. We were just in the book of Acts for our scripture reading, and then after Acts comes the Pauline epistles. In order, by length and by typically importance in terms of the doctrines they treat, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. And this morning we are looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word. That you would show us the Savior that we might go to the cross and in that cross find our burdens lifted away. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us here to this place to hear from you. And we ask by your Holy Spirit you would powerfully work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today, if you have watched the news recently or seen newspaper reports from the past week, months, even years, you will know that we live in a divided time. People are divided into groups. They fight with one another. It is enough to cause us grave concern and we wonder if our time is hopeless, if something is so fundamentally wrong that even the Lord himself cannot bring it to resolution. The good news that I have for you this morning is not that we do not live in a divided time, we do. But in that, our time is very much like the days of the New Testament itself. The time exactly in which Paul was writing. It was a very divided time with nation against nation and people against people. And what we see here this morning from our text 
is that the gospel has something to say not only to Paul's time, but to ours as well. The gospel tells us of the change that is brought about by the Lord Himself in people, and that that change brings about change in our world. So this morning, I would like us to see three things from our text as Paul encourages the Ephesian church. First, we will see a people that are divided. Then second, we will see a people who are disadvantaged. But thirdly, and most gloriously, we will see a people who are different than before. Divided, disadvantaged, and yet different than before. As we pick up our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 begins what is a parallel passage to the passage we have been looking at the last few weeks. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, down through to chapter to verse 10. Paul is once again reminding us of our past, our present, and our future. And he's doing this for a reason. Because you see, Paul knows we cannot realize the greatness of God's power until we understand what God's power has overcome. And so, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul described how God's power has overcome our state and our sin. How we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And how we longed to continue in our sins. And God's power has overcome that. Now, Paul is going to tell us how God's power is sufficient to overcome division and disadvantages. Now, there is a context here in which Paul is speaking. He is speaking to a Gentile audience in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. And it was an exceedingly diverse city. It was not that much unlike Houston. A huge city. I can imagine what the traffic must have been like in Ephesus as you tried to get from one place to the other. Because not only would there have been a lot of people, they would have been on very slow-moving animals and vehicles. There would have been people from all over the empire. And the church in Ephesus would have been made up primarily by people known as Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. The Jews referred to everyone else as a Gentile. As a matter of fact, the Greek word that is used for Gentile is nations. All the nations Paul is addressing here. Everyone but the Jews. And so the context is, the church is the fulfillment of God's people. It is the fulfillment of God's people here on earth. In this way, it is similar to Old Testament Israel, which was God's people. But it is beyond that. As we go through the Old Testament, we see the Lord speaking to Israel, calling them His people and caring for them. But there is also a strain throughout the Old Testament that speaks of the nations. The prophets in particular declare that the salvation of God will reach the coastlands. It will go to all the nations. The knowledge of the Lord will spread over all of the earth. 
The prophet Isaiah is particularly bold in proclaiming this. But yet, in spite of this reality, there was great conflict in the time of Paul. Jews were not fond of Gentiles. As a matter of fact, when a Jew talked about a Gentile, typically they would use the word dog. That was not a term of endearment. It was because they felt they were beneath them, almost somehow subhuman. One rabbi put it this way, if you can imagine this. He said that the Gentiles were created as fuel for the fires of hell. There's not a chummy relationship here between Gentiles and Jews. But on the other hand, Jews were not thought of much better by Gentiles. To the Gentiles, the Jews were seen as barbarians, haters of culture and literature, people who didn't understand the way the world worked. And ironically, Jews were called atheists by Gentiles. Not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't worship all of the gods, the dozens of gods that were found in the Gentile world. And so we can see here that now, especially in the Greco-Roman world, there are barriers set up between people. Barriers especially set up between people in the church, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul uses now this reality, something that people would understand very easily. He doesn't need to lay a hard and difficult theological case We all understand instinctively the difference and the tension that comes between groups of people. And he uses this to highlight the power of God. And so he begins in verse 11 with a therefore. Now you know what therefore is there for, don't you? The therefore is there to point you backwards. You look up in the text And so Paul is saying, because of everything I've said in verses 1 through 10, because you were dead in your sins, because you desired to continue in sin, because God broke in and intervened, and by Jesus Christ, he brought you to himself and you found forgiveness and salvation. Because of all of this, remember. Now this is not a suggestion. This verb is a command. You parents know what that's like, don't you? You look at your children and you say, Now listen, remember. Remember what I told you. And there's an instance in which they're responsible for the content of what you ask them to remember. They can't just go along and forget. Paul says, remember, it's a command. And beyond that, it's a present tense command. So what Paul is saying is, carry this with you all the time. Don't forget this. Don't think you can go past this. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. You see, Paul wants us to understand that there was a great barrier that kept Christians from God. It was that they were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, I find this very interesting and very unmodern of Paul. You see, our modern tendency is to pretend that differences don't exist. That all people are the same. 
that all countries are the same. That all cultures are the same. That even men and women are the same. Well, I don't know about you, but that cuts against common sense. All you have to do is to go to dinner with someone from another culture, and you know that what they eat and like to do is very different often than what you do. That especially happens if you're not fond of spicy food, and you go and someone loads up on the peppers because that's a part of their culture. You have to be wary. You have to ask ahead of time, is this food safe to eat? All that we have to do is look at each other and see in the great variety in which God has created us. Tall, short, big, small, with every hue of skin tone. We we know instinctively that there are differences. And it does not help us to pretend that they don't exist. Because that's a false solution. But you see, what Paul is doing is pointing out that differences exist and that we must move past them. After all, the difference that Paul is talking about here between Jews and Gentiles was created by God. God called Abraham to himself. God made of Abraham a family of patriarchs. And of that family, he made a nation. So the differences in and of themselves are not bad or wrong. God is at the root of this difference that Paul is talking about. The problem is, is that these differences had turned into barriers. Barriers of fellowship. Barriers of hope. How does this happen? How do differences divide and have barriers put up between us? The first and most important thing for us to remember with this is pride. That's where differences become barriers. You see, we have a false view of ourselves. We think that we are the best. And no one else can measure up. And anyone who does anything differently than we do does it wrong. If you doubt me, Let me give you an example. Perhaps you've experienced this. Someone is over at your house and they helpfully volunteer to help with the dishes. And they start to take the dishes and begin to wash them and take care of them. And you look at them and you say, why are you doing it wrong? That's not how we wash dishes. Why would you choose to do it that way? That's the wrong way. Let me show you the right way to do it. You know, perhaps they're filling up the tub with water. And you say, no, 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 we don't fill that up. We just put soap on the sponge. Or maybe they stack all of the plates on one side of the kitchen. And you say, no, 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 we don't do that. The problem is we're proud of ourselves and who we are. And it takes us to a level beyond where we are meant to be. And those differences become barriers because we view everyone else as being wrong and ourselves as being right. We have a false view of ourselves. Now, this is not a cultural problem. This is a theological problem. Because, you see, the pride that comes to us in this comes because we fail to see that everything that we do well, everything that we are, comes from God. We're not responsible. It's God who gives gifts to us. 
And so when we have pride and we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God, it lifts up barriers between people. But we also have a false view of others. We view others as lower than they are. We exaggerate and lift up their problems, their challenges, their difficulties. All of their weaknesses we dwell upon. Paul says this will lift up barriers. But there's a second thing that contributes to this division. And it's bad theology. Bad theology contributes to the problem because the barriers are real, but they're not the only problem. Paul says this when he says that the Gentiles are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, this can be difficult to understand in our translation, but you have to trust me on this. Paul is being incredibly sarcastic. If he were here and using a tone of voice, you would know exactly. You are called the uncircumcision by those who are called so-called circumcision. You see, Paul wants us to know that the Jews had seized upon the main difference between themselves and the Gentiles. And that is circumcision that God had commanded Abraham. God had called out Abraham and a people and he had marked them off to be different by circumcision. And the problem is, is that the Jews began to seize upon only that physical difference. They began to think that was what was important. They began to think that that physical mark was the difference between them and everyone else. And all of the emphasis that they began to place upon the difference was on externals. They stopped looking at the heart. They stopped looking at their relationship with God. And instead, they pejoratively looked at everyone else who did not look like them. Now, this is the easy way of judgment. We can judge people by their nationality, by their birth, by their race, both negatively and positively. But see, Paul counters this way of thinking. Remember, Paul is a Jew. And he calls the Jews out on this. He says, what is called the circumcision? There's a false sense of security, Paul says, that you're trusting in. Don't trust in your circumcision. Now, in doing this, Paul is simply repeating to the the church the Old Testament promises of God. God had called upon the Jews in Deuteronomy 10 to circumcise their hearts. That is not to worry about an external physicality, but to look inside their heart, to look at how they look to the Lord. Are they trusting the Lord? Are they seeking the Lord? You see, Paul reminds us that human fleshly work is nothing. He says this is done by fleshly hands. It's not that big of a deal, Paul is saying. What counts is what God does. Now, we need to remember this, because this is a part of our society, isn't it? It even creeps into our Americanness, doesn't it? We take great pride in being Americans. But you see, the truth of the matter is, is that what makes the real difference is the heart. 
As a part of the church of Jesus Christ, we have more in common with fellow believers in India, in Africa, in South America, and in Japan than we do with fellow Americans who fail to profess the name of Christ. Because it's the heart that makes the difference. It's God who breaks down the barriers. Paul clearly here is pointing us to faith. Secondly, Paul wants us to see the greatness of God in what we were apart from Christ. He tells us that we were disadvantaged. Again, in verse 12, he calls upon us to remember. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. And he will now begin to give us one large overarching category of disadvantage and then four other specific instances of disadvantage. Now, this is not done by way of discouragement, but rather encouragement. Paul doesn't want us simply to dwell upon how horrible we were, but he wants us to remember and know who we were so that we can understand what we have become in Christ. First, he begins with his overarching category. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, Paul is making a very bold statement here. In our world, we have a multiplicity of categories. There are tribes within tribes within tribes. Even in America, it is almost impossible today to describe someone without a hyphen. You don't just have Americans. You have Asian Americans, and African Americans, and European Americans. What Paul says is, there are only two categories that matter. Separate from Christ, and in Christ. That's all that matters. Because nothing else brings us to God. And so what he says to the Ephesian church is, you were in a state where you didn't even know about Christ. You didn't even know the Messiah. You didn't even know there was a Messiah. Now it is one thing to be lost and be searching for a Savior. It's another thing that's worse to be lost and not to know if a Savior is out there. But the Ephesians were in the worst of all possible conditions. They didn't even know they were lost. And they had no idea that there was a Savior. Paul reminds them of how precarious their position was. There couldn't be anything worse than that position. Now as we think about this for a moment, this should stir up in our hearts a love of evangelism and missions. Because there are people out there today who are separate from Christ. Who don't know they are lost. Who don't know that they need a Savior. And they need someone to bring them the good news of the Gospel. So that they can be changed. And so that we can say to them, you once were separate from Christ. But now, you are changed. Paul then begins to move into some specific categories. He begins to talk about the helplessness of the Ephesian Christians. He says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, the Bible tells us that God has formed for himself a people, a community. 
He has a particular relationship to his people. He has a special interest in them. He called Abraham out from Ur, and he made of him a family. And from a family, he made a nation and a people. And they were God's chosen people. His chosen generation. A holy nation. Paul says to the Ephesians, you were aliens to all of this. You didn't belong to God's people. You were out in the great mass of people on the outside. Now, think about that for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where you know what it feels like to be on the outside? Perhaps you're at an event or a party, and there's a group having a conversation, and their body language and where they're standing makes it painfully clear you're not welcome into the circle. Or perhaps... Even at that same occasion, you break into the circle and you realize by the conversation they're having, you know nothing about it. You are woefully on the outside. You can't participate. That's painful, isn't it? We don't like that. What Paul says to the Ephesians is, you are on the outside of God's people. Now there's a great irony here. He is poking at the Ephesians' common sense. Because you see... Many of these Ephesian Christians would have been Roman citizens. And there was no better in-crowd than to be a Roman citizen. It came with a multiplicity of benefits. You had legal rights that others didn't have. You had rights of inheritance and money that others didn't have. And so what he is saying is, you thought you were on the inside, but you were alienated. You are on the outside because the only thing that matters is your relationship to God. Not money, not power. The only thing that matters is your relationship to God. He then begins to go on. He says, you were strangers to the covenants of of promise. This word here that is used for strangers means someone who is wandering, who needs help just to have a place to stay and to eat. But you see, God had given the covenant to Abraham and he had reiterated it to Moses and to David and to the prophets and then finally through Jesus in the new covenant. He had given the path to salvation in the promise of life and the Ephesians knew nothing about this. This was the case for everyone without Christ. They cannot look at the promises and understand them. It's like reading another language. Do you feel like a stranger sometimes when people talk about the Bible or read the Bible? Do you feel like it all is somehow beyond you, written in another language? Well, see, the answer then is to come to Christ. That is how we are no longer strangers. If we are no longer separate from Christ, we are then no longer strangers. We are not helpless anymore. Paul begins to then describe how hopeless the situation of the Ephesians is. He moves on to the consequences of being separated from Christ. And he starts with a hard, dark word. He looks at the Ephesians and he says, You were having no hope. Now, he doesn't mean that they felt despair 24 hours a day. He doesn't mean that as they walked down the streets of Ephesus, a little black storm cloud was over their head raining on them. 
No. What he means is, is that they were always headed toward the wrath of God. That they had no happy ending possible. That they were completely without hope. And the verb here is a present participle. It means their constant existence was one of no hope. Now imagine that. Is there anything more devastating than that? It's bad enough to hear from your financial advisor, well, I don't know how we're going to work retirement. But what if he said, you have no hope at all of ever retiring. It's bad enough to hear from your doctor, the treatment options are few and it's going to be a difficult time than to hear you have no hope of recovery. There's nothing darker or harder. But you see, that's the situation for everyone apart from Jesus Christ. And this is something that we must come to grips with. The world is not going to get better. Man today is as bad as he was when he was thrust from out from Eden. There is nothing to look forward to that will solve the problems of the world itself. Not more education, not more technology, not more politics. The problem with us and the world is that we don't have Jesus. That is the only solution for hope. And apart from Jesus, there is no hope. But he goes on even more. He says, not only were you without hope, you were without God in the world. Now, this is one of these occasions where Knowing Greek makes you chuckle in the study. Because the word without God is actually the word atheist. It sounds the same in Greek as in English. He says, you were atheists in the world. Now understand, Paul means this to describe hopelessness in their lives. He's calling out people who are sitting on the fence, not sure if they believe in God. And he says, you're without hope and without God in the world. Now this makes sense because Paul's told us earlier, there are only two categories of people. People separate from Christ and in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're without hope and without God. Now what is it like to live in a world without God? Well, first... Uncertainty reigns, doesn't it? Because nobody's in control. Secondly, injustice reigns. Because there's no one to uphold the pattern of justice. There's no one to make things right. There's no opportunity for us to look forward to the day when God would put all things right, when He will take away all sorrow and pain, wipe away every tear. To be without God is to be hopeless. Because the world can never be fixed. This is as good as it gets. Brothers and sisters, it ain't very good. Now this would be a very bad place to end the sermon. Because it's also a bad place to say that Paul ends, because he doesn't. He moves on then to verse 13 and describes how we are different than we were before. You see, there's a reason Paul paints this dark picture. It's not to depress us. It's so we realize the greatness of our salvation in Christ. 
We must begin with our condition apart from Jesus. And now he moves to our condition in Christ. And he gives us this great gospel hinge at verse 13. But now. Do you notice everything before was once. But now things are different, he says. It's the same way that he has spoken in verse 4 earlier. Now is an emphatic word. It's the first word in Paul's sentence. He actually says, now but. Think about who you are now in Christ. And then he summarizes everything that he has said before. You were once afar off. That encompasses everything bad and hopeless and helpless that he has said. That was you once, but now you are not afar off. But now you're near. And all of that helplessness and all of that hopelessness and all of that division fades away. Because we realize that's who we were. It's not who we are. Because of what Jesus has done. What makes the difference between then and now? Notice there is no word about what we do. Paul doesn't say one thing about who we are. Everything that Paul says is of God. He says, you have been brought near. It's a passive verb. We are acted upon. Paul Paul is telling us that God is the actor. He wants us to see what God has done. And what has God done? He's not improved us or our lives. He's not made it so that we're living a better life. That's a false gospel. He says the difference that is made is now we are near. Brought near to God. Now what does that mean? It means that now we know God. We know who He is. It means that now we have hope. And can come boldly to the throne of God. It means that we have the promise of God. And with it we can have assurance as we rest upon God's promises. It means that we have a people that God has given to us. To be brought near is to be blessed by Jesus. Now, do not lose sight as we conclude of the last phrase in verse 13. All of what has been done in Christ is glorious. But often we can get caught up in all of the blessings that we have received. Paul wants us to see the most critical thing. How do I draw near to God? It's not in my nature. We've seen that. It's not in the good things that I do for others. Many have tried that. It's not because I am religious. No, the only way to draw near to God is by a mediator. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has placed us in Christ Jesus, and this has been done by the blood of Christ. It is something done to us. Now this is important. It's not just Jesus' teachings that save us. It's not merely if we could be aware of the fact that God is love that would save us. No, 
It is only by the death of Jesus Christ, by His blood, it is Jesus' death that changes me. Now what does this mean? It means for any of you here this morning who have not placed your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not know that you were lost, didn't know that you needed a Savior, that this is where hope lies. This is where belonging is found. This is where unity is found. It is found in Jesus. You must embrace Him. You must claim Him as your own. You must confess that you are lost and you need a Savior and His blood and death will save. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we cannot forget how God drew us to Himself or else we will forget that God can draw others to Himself in that same way. We will begin to despair of the salvation of others. We will see them as beyond the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that is not true. Once you were lost, once you were hopeless, once you were helpless, but now Jesus has made all the difference. This is life and life eternal. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us this word of encouragement, hope, and power. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would remind us that we need Jesus. That all our hope is in him. Please point us to the cross. That there we might find relief from the burden of our sins. Hope eternal. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.